Well, as I mentioned earlier, today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Depending on your history and your experience, you might have any number of feelings about the season. Some of you uh, have almost no experience, and so you feel nothing. Some of you have horrible memories of being forced to eat fish against your will. And so it's a, you sort of have negative feelings of this time of year. And some of you may have rich memories of this 40-day period that leads up to our resurrection celebration. The word Lent is just the shortened version of the word Lenten. It's an old English word that describes the season that we're in, this season between winter and, and summer that we usually call spring. Well, for many, Lent is uh, used as a time of penance or fasting. Uh, For me, Lent has always been a helpful time of reflection, of repentance, of narrowing my focus. I find a lot of uh, value in the themes, in the readings, in the direction uh, of this season. For thousands of years, the church has made this time a period of preparation for Holy Week. And because of that emphasis, it's often a time when we get back to the basics, the foundation, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. We lean into those foundational ideas upon which Christ has called us and saved us and built his church. As I've said before, a tradition is a wonderful servant and a terrible master. In the case of Lent, tradition can be terrible when it leads us to thinking that our hope and our salvation is found in our sacrifice, in our penance, in our ability to accomplish or to do something for God. But it's wonderful when it points us to Jesus, when it helps to prepare us, to focus us. So over the course of the next six Sundays, we'll be allowing God's Word to focus us on the cross. On Sunday mornings, I'll be preaching from New Testament passages, and then, as I mentioned earlier, you're invited back on Wednesdays as we'll explore related Old Testament passages uh, each week. Our scripture text today is Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 8. In this passage, we discover some tremendous words of clarity and assurance regarding our salvation. And in many ways, this portion of Scripture will serve as sort of a primer or a glossary for this season of Lent ahead of us. We encounter a bunch of words, a bunch of phrases that are foundational as we consider the themes of this season. And then this passage brings us great clarity and focus from Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 8. This is God's word to us. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. 
The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in us today that which is pleasing to you. We believe that your word is true. We confess that it is the final authority. And so give us faith to believe what you say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider Paul's teaching in this passage, we'll first look at the critical vocabulary and then the beautiful certainty. First, let's look at the critical vocabulary that Paul gives us as we focus on the cross. I'm going to work my way through a list of vocabulary words that show up in this passage. And the first one is the word righteousness. Now, you might be questioning me already because uh, as I read our text, you wouldn't have seen the word righteousness in that passage, at least in the translation that I read from. But if we read the larger context of our passage, you'll see it pretty clearly. Paul's in the middle of a section of, of Romans in which he's discussing a conundrum. The difficult reality that had presented itself that the Jews, the very people through whom God had been working for millennia to bring about the salvation of the world, those Jews had rejected the Son of God, they had crucified him, they had no interest in the ultimate deliverance and salvation that he came to bring about. In the verses before our passage, Paul is discussing this very word, the word righteousness. And he's offering an observation or maybe a critique of how the Jewish people understood and defined what it meant to be righteous or how one could become righteous. So what is righteousness? It's one of those words that we all hear and we have a, we have a sense of what it means, but we might struggle to define it. Let's see how Paul sets up this discussion in Romans chapter 10 verse 1. Romans 10 verse 1, this is what Paul writes. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking of Israel, is that they would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Righteousness is being right in the eyes of God, being who you ought to be according to your creator. The question of whether one is righteous presumes that there is some sort of standard for measurement. Scripture, of course, teaches that the standard by which our righteousness is measured is God's law. And so this gets to the heart of what I would argue is the prominent question in Romans. The question of how we become right or righteous in the eyes of God. Paul begins his discussion of this in Romans chapter 1. He says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made known. He goes on to say the righteous will live by faith. And then he says uh, in chapter 2 that the wrath of God, God's 
wrath against sin is being revealed against unrighteousness. So this theme continues. And and once he's established that, that that God uh, pours out his judgment, his wrath against unrighteousness, we arrive in Romans chapter 3 where he argues no one is righteous. He uses that phrase, not even one. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that really sets up this prominent question that exists throughout the letter. How does one go from being unrighteous, short of God's glory, to being righteous in the eyes of God? And just so you don't think that this is just a stuffy theological debate among academics, it's worth noting that the basic longing for righteousness is found in every human culture that has ever existed. Study any ancient or modern culture or people group and you will see systems of justification or righteousness or appeasement of a higher power built into each and every culture that has ever existed. Why? Because at our very core, human beings sense and feel that we are not right. The quest for righteousness isn't something that was created by ancient world religions. It's a question and an an internal longing that we can't ignore that countless world religions have been created to attempt to answer. Including, for example, secular humanism, which has dedicated itself to trying to convince people that, that the longing that they feel within them isn't real. That it's implied, that it's a product of conditioning. Leading up to our, to our sermon text for today, Paul contrasts two approaches to this question of righteousness. First is, as he says, righteousness that's based on the law, on obeying God's law. And second is, in his words, righteousness that is by faith. Two different approaches to righteousness before God. One that we become righteous by obeying God's law, and another that we become righteous by faith. And this is the heart of the question uh, that Paul is tackling in Romans. He, he poses it a little bit differently in verse 3 of Romans chapter 10. Uh, Paul presents it in, in a slightly different way. He says, uh, the righteousness of God as opposed to a righteousness of their own. Uh, so he, in, in Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 3, gets to the, sort of the, the, uh, the dividing line between a righteousness that is provided by God as opposed to a righteousness that we attain on our own. That's the backdrop of our text for today. This deep question that's at the heart of every human being and every uh, human culture that has ever existed of how we become right with God. And that brings us to our second vocabulary word, uh, and that's confess. Uh, It comes from verse 9. Our translation said, if you declare with your mouth, uh, many translations use the word confess. If you confess with your mouth, uh, I'm going to probably refer to that word confess more often than uh, declare, but either are good, either are acceptable translations. Uh, But what does that mean? What does it mean to 
confess. In this sense, a confession doesn't mean tell someone a secret or reveal some sordid details about your past. That's not uh, what this means. The word that Paul uses is a compound word, uh, and it literally means to say the same. To say the same. It's a word that in other places is translated as promise, affirm, declare, profess. It's a declaration that I am in that camp, that I am in agreement with this way of thinking. So, so it's, it's deeper than merely lip service. It's not just a, a, a verbal statement. It, it's affirming yourself, aligning yourself, committing yourself to a particular position, belief, or truth. So in the context of our passage today, which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Paul's not saying that, uh, that, that we just utter words. It's a de- declaration of your agreement. It's declaring your personal position that Jesus is Lord. It's aligning yourself with a belief. Paul's building on this uh, established reality that we find in the scriptures. Uh, He's actually quoting a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, that there is this connection between the heart and the mouth. This is well established in in scripture. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, We can look at the Isaiah chapter 6 passage. I preached on that a month ago. If you remember Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim takes the coal from the altar and touches it uh, not to Isaiah's heart or chest, but to his lips. We know that there's this great significance uh, to the lips, to to the mouth, but that it's deeper than just that. Isaiah had just confessed, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. He wasn't being literal. It's not that his lips were literally unclean. It's, it's that his heart was unclean. This connection between mouth and heart. Or we see it again in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus just gets right to the point. He, he says, what comes from the mouth proceeds from the heart. So there's it's a basic biblical reality that, that Paul is building on here. That that which we confess with our mouth comes from our heart. The things that you say reveal what is inside of you. To confess is to declare your agreement, your affiliation, to take a stand. The next vocabulary word is the word believe. We find it again in verse 9. It's As Paul uh, builds verse 9 here, if you confess uh, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Of course, the word believe is one that we use often in English. It's a word that means different things in different places. Uh, Let me illustrate that. Uh, Suppose uh, that someone asks you uh, this afternoon, how far it is from Dickinson to Bismarck. Your response uh, might be, Google it, uh, or you might say, I I believe it's about 100 miles. Very casual use of the word believe. You're not establishing a firm position. You're you're just saying, I I I think, I believe, 
It's about 100 miles. In another situation, you might be catching up with an old friend or classmate from years gone by, and you bring up uh, the fact that you are attending a church, and they respond, oh, I stopped believing in God years ago. Very different use of that word than just believing that Bismarck is 100 miles away. And then there's the way that Jesus uses the word. In Luke chapter 8, he describes uh, the parable of the sower who cast his seed on all types of ground, all types of terrain. And Jesus says uh, that some believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. You get a sense of how difficult this word is to nail down for people. And yet it's a word that Jesus used so often in his teaching and his ministry and his preaching. For example, in the Gospel of John, it's a word that is used 85, at least 85 times that I found. Maybe one one of the most helpful perspectives on this is how it's used in John chapter 3, Uh, verse 36. John chapter 3, verse 36. Uh, Listen to these words. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see what happens in that passage? Believing is set up as the opposite of disobeying. It's interesting, isn't it? These are the words of John the baptizer as he speaks of uh, of Jesus. He sets up two types of people. Those who believe what Jesus says and those who disobey. It's helpful. To believe can never simply mean to acknowledge the existence of. It's not merely an intellectual affirmation or agreement that God exists. It's deeper than that. It gets at questions of our trust, of our action. The word believe means to be convinced, to place your trust in. There there are some here this morning, perhaps, who acknowledge Jesus' existence, but have never truly believed. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess that Jesus is Lord, the one in control, the ruler, the king, the highest authority. That's not merely an affirmation of existence. It's not merely saying, yes, God is real. And believe that God raised him from the dead. Paul doesn't Just say, believe that Jesus existed once upon a time. He says, believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. That he is the living Savior. That he conquered death, defeated the grave, made a fool out of that great enemy. Do we place our trust in the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you place your trust and your hope in the message that Through Christ's death, your sin is forgiven. Your debt has been paid. You have been declared righteous. You have been adopted as a child of God. That's that's the full sense of what it means to believe, not just affirm the existence of. And and yet, at the very same time, I, I have to caution you that we would never 
believe these things on our own. That to believe is is not just a product of our intellect, but of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the gospel. And we recognize that if if a perfectly nailed down understanding of all these things was necessary, none of us would ever believe. One other piece of information that, that's helpful as you understand and as you read this word believe is that it's essentially the same word that gets translated as faith. When you, when you see the word believe, you could usually, depending on the situation, substitute that with uh, our understanding of faith. So our glossary is uh, taking shape. Righteousness, confess, believe. Fourth, I want to look at the word saved. It shows up a couple of times in our passage today. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's another common word in scripture. It's a word that usually uh, carries with it thoughts of rescue, of deliverance. It's used in the Bible in both uh, a spiritual sense, and also in a physical sense. For example, uh, think about how it's used in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus comes, uh, Jesus encounters the blind man named Bartimaeus. And Jesus says to Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well. That phrase, made you well, is the exact same word that Paul uses in Romans 10 when he writes the word saved. Your faith has saved you. To be saved is to be healed, delivered, set free, rescued. Paul uses this word again in verse 13 of our text. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we had more time today, we could, we could trace Paul's use of this word of saving, rescuing, delivering throughout his teaching. I'll give you a quick Quick summary. Scripture makes it clear that our salvation, our being saved, is both from something and to something. That we are saved from something and we are saved to something. That salvation is not just wiping our slate clean. That that there's more to it than that. That that we are saved from guilt, from slavery, from alienation with God from death, from God's wrath against sin, and we are saved to righteousness and holiness and freedom and fellowship with God and eternal life. Salvation, as Paul teaches here, is more than just praying a prayer to avoid hell. Salvation is about being rescued, being set free, being delivered, being made new. Righteousness, confess, Believe, saved. And then the final word that I want to throw out to you today is the word justified. I mentioned earlier that the word righteousness didn't show up in our passage for today in most of our translations, but that wasn't entirely accurate. If you read, if you're reading this in Greek, you you would know that. Uh, Verse 10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified. That word justified in verse 10 is really the word made righteous. For with the heart one believes and is made 
righteous. And so, so we see an even larger understanding of this word righteousness, this word justification, that these words in Scripture are often used interchangeably depending on the situation. For example, in Romans chapter 5, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We could very easily say there, having been made righteous by faith. The word justification is a legal term. It means that you have been declared right or declared righteous. If your actions are justified, they are judged to be right, proper, legal. And that's exactly what happens for those who believe. We are judged by the one true and final judge to be right, to be righteous before him. Okay, so we've worked through a lot of vocabulary that's going to come up again in the next uh, handful of weeks as we focus on the cross. Uh, Next, let's uh, examine the beautiful certainty that we see in our text. Romans 10 is full of statements that lead us to great certainty, great assurance. Uh, Perhaps the most clear is is the concluding statement of verse 9, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is particularly uh, helpful and, and powerful when you think about the context that I mentioned earlier. Paul set up this distinction between two types of righteousness. Righteousness that is based on the law, righteousness that is by faith. Two different approaches to righteousness. And in case you're wondering where Paul lands in his discussion. He's, he's already told us in chapter 3 uh, when, when he said, uh, no one will be declared righteous by works of the law. No one will be declared righteous. No one is justified, as he says in Galatians chapter 2, by works of the law, but instead by faith. And so with that, uh, with that backdrop, our text today becomes really clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Paul says, certainly you will be saved. He's making a number of things clear to these Roman believers. Salvation is not a product of your heritage. We see that in uh, neither Jew nor, nor Greek. Salvation doesn't come because of your heritage. Salvation doesn't come through obedience to the law. We we are saved. We are made righteous. We are justified through faith alone. Think about those clarity statements in our text. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If your salvation, if your hope in this life and in the next is dependent upon what you offer, what you accomplish. There is no reason for certainty. There is no cause for assurance. It it might not jump off the page when you read it, but verse 13 is a a quote from the prophet Joel. I read it earlier. In Joel chapter 2, we read these exact words. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Paul takes the words of the prophet and he makes this connection to Jesus. 
that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul, Paul isn't only saying that Jesus is the way to be saved. He's saying that Jesus is the one to whom the entire Old Testament pointed. In fact, it's one of the major uh, sub-themes of this portion of Scripture. Paul references or quotes at least three or four, uh, arguably more, Old Testament uh, references in this handful of verses. He's, he's making a point. All of the Old Testament is building to this clear and certain declaration that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't miss that emphasis in our text. I'm not sure where God's word connects with you this morning. As we enter this season of reflection, of repentance, but that's the beautiful thing about, about this message of righteousness and faith. Whatever your day or week or year has been like, whatever the trials or the joys that we experience today and in the days and months ahead, we, we, we need to be reminded of the same message. Some of you are here today confident in your own righteousness. That's the tricky thing about being a Christian. That, that as soon as the Holy Spirit works within you, as soon as some good change and progress starts to happen in your life, that, that your pride grabs a hold of it. You start to own it for yourself. It's turned from, uh, from the work of God in you into your own work. We're quick to become confident in our own righteousness, in a righteousness that comes from our own narrow perception of what it means to obey the Lord. Others of you today are keenly aware of your need for a Savior. Whether because of your sin or because of the reality of our broken world, because of the wickedness and disease that is all around you, you, you recognize, you know this morning that you need a Savior. Whatever your situation today, the message that all of us need is the same. We need God's word to kick our legs out from under us, to bring us to our knees, to remind us that there's no amount of behavior or goodness that will save us. And here's the thing, we don't only need that message when we come to faith for the first time, we need it every day. We, we, we live every day with the reminder that Christ, as Paul says, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Every attempt to get right or to stay right with God by obedience to the law will leave you doubting. I want to say that again. Every attempt to get right with God or to stay right with God by obedience to the law will leave you doubting. Our ongoing hope as Christians is not found in righteousness that comes from the law, but in the righteousness of God that is given as a gift to all who believe. Let's pray. God, we confess that those, even those of us who have been believers for, for decades struggle to, to truly and, and functionally believe these words. God, give us faith to believe. Lord, as we enter this season of Lent, focus our eyes and focus our hearts on, on the cross. 
where your love uh, for each of us was proven, was on display. And God, as we uh, receive the Lord's Supper today, would you strengthen us? Would you help us to rest in your promises and the righteousness that comes from you that is gifted to us by faith? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.